So when I was a kid, I, uh, we, I think I've talked about this a little bit. I grew up in the swamp um, of Mississippi, in the backwoods. I'm not as like country and redneck as I could be, like by a long shot. Um, but I still like to be in the woods, and I like to, uh, you know, do things that you would do in the woods. And uh, my parents didn't have a lot of property, but one of our neighbors had like just acres and acres of woods that he didn't do anything with. And so my, me and my siblings got to run around on it like it was ours. Um, and it was a lot of fun. We built all kinds of like forts and like did all kinds of uh, stuff on this like guy's land that he never knew about. Uh, other than he just knew we were running around on his property, which is great. We, you know, we were kids who didn't care. Um, but there was one day I, I remember specifically it had, it had just rained a good bit. And after rain, there are lots of mud puddles in the woods. Uh, especially like if you have like a dirt trail or something, uh, it just becomes a mud trail at that point. And me and my brother, of course, loving to ride our bikes around in the woods, also loved whenever it was muddy outside because then you got to go mudding, right? Um, now, we didn't like have like four-wheelers and stuff that I wish we could have because I grew up poor too. But I did have a bike and it was still fun to smash that thing through a, a mud hole. It was awesome. And uh, this, my mom knew that it just rained because she's not dumb, right? She'd look outside. And, uh, and she looked at us and she said, under no circumstance should you ever ride your bike through a mud hole. Do you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Right? I had to say yes, ma'am or no, ma'am. Right? She's like, yes, ma'am. And what do you think we immediately did? We went to the mud hole because we were like, okay, mom. Right? Like, we're going to be out here and there's some perfectly awesome mud holes out here and we're not going to rut them. Uh, uh, and so me and my brother, like, spent a couple hours just smashing through these mud holes and stuff. And we were covered, like, head to toe. Then came the time of, we got to go home. So what do we do now? Right? What, how do we do this? So I thought, hey, we'll go back, we'll sneak into the backyard, we'll get the water hose, and we'll like wash up because it won't look obvious that we washed ourselves off or anything. Uh, we'll wash ourselves off, and then we'll try and sneak in the house. I did not have a very big house, and pretty much any way you came into the house, you had to go through the living room of our house. Uh, even like the back door, like all of it, like all roads led to Rome. Like you had to go through there, and that's where my parents hung out. Unless you climbed in a window, which... I was like a little kid in our house. It's not like real tall, but it was high enough that I couldn't do it. Uh, and so then it was, all right, my brother's name is JC. We have lots of initials in my family at school. I'm JJ. He's JC. Um, and uh, I was like, all right, JC, you watch. Uh, there was like a, a glass like door on the back of the house. Like the, the back door was like one of the sliding glass doors kind of things. I was like, all right, you watch out. And as soon as like, because dad hadn't been home from work yet, thankfully, because if dad's there, it's a whole nother ball game, right? Uh, Dad hadn't been home from work yet, uh, but Mom was sitting watching TV, and I was like, as soon as she gets up to go, like, do something with dinner or, like, go to the bathroom or something, we're going to get in, and we're going to try to sneak around her, right? So he's watching, and he's watching. She gets up, and she she goes to do whatever she's going to do, and my brother was like, JJ, it's time. We're like, okay, and we, like, start going through the house. We get into the living room, and my dad walks in because he had just gotten home from work. He's like, what are you guys doing? Nothing. What are you doing? Have a good day at work, Dad? Uh, Mom walks in and goes, you were in the mud hole, weren't you? Yeah. (laughs) Right? So we got in trouble. Uh, We were caught red-handed or, I don't know, mud-handed, right? Mud-handed? I don't know. We were, because we were still muddy. Like, no matter what you do with a hose, like, until you actually get in, like, a bath or, like, a shower or something, you're not getting all that off. Uh, And so we were were just caught red-handed, and there was nothing to do but just to confess 
uh, and hope that the punishment wasn't like real, real bad, right? Uh, <laughs> and so uh, tonight, the, character, the guy that we're going to look at, the hero, so we're, we have, we're looking at heroes of the Old Testament. We've looked at the life of Joseph, and we've looked at, last week, we looked at the life of Samson, who was full crazy. Uh, and tonight, the, the hero we're going to look at, he found himself in a similar situation, but significantly worse, where he was just caught red-handed in something that he shouldn't have been in. So now we're going to look at King David. If you weren't here earlier, we played a cool game about David and that kind of thing. Um, but David is arguably one of the greatest figures in all of the Bible outside of Jesus, right? Outside of Jesus, David is probably one of the most talked about, most celebrated um, in, in Jewish culture especially. King David is the greatest king to have ever ruled over Israel. Everything goes back to David. He's this high, exalted guy who got to kill a giant. Like when he was a teenager, he got to like go into battle and fight a nine-foot like tall dude who was like a trained like warrior beast and t- little teenage like scrawny little uh, David like comes in with a sling and like takes him down and cuts his head off. Um, David does some incredible, incredible stuff. One of the most significant things uh, to me at least about David that we see in the book of Acts, you don't have to turn there, I'll just, uh, in the book of Acts chapter 13, the writer tells us, that David was considered a man after God's own heart. Like David was so close to God that his heart and God's heart beat in the same rhythm. They cared about a lot of the same stuff. They thought the same ways. Like David was so close to God, and he was uh, such an honored man of God that he was considered to be a man after God's own heart. There is no greater honor or thing to be said about any person ever than that right there. But, just like any human, David made mistakes. David had sin. David failed. And so tonight, we're going to look at one of David's probably most famous mistakes. So in, in 2 Samuel, you can go ahead and turn there. We're, I'm going to story part of it, and then we'll read part of it. Uh, so 2 Samuel... Chapter 11 is where we're going to start. This is where our story starts. So this is a story uh, of David and Bathsheba. If you've been in church for like more than like a minute, you've probably heard this, this, some part of this story. But I'm, I'm going to tell it again. So as we come into chapter 11 uh, of 2 Samuel, I don't know if I said 1 Samuel a second ago, but this is 2 Samuel, chapter 11. As we come into this, we see that uh, Israel is in battle with the, with the Ammonites, a common enemy of Israel. And it was, it was sort of this uh, almost annual battle that would go on. You don't really need to know all that. But they were, um, at this time of year that they would go to battle with these people, and this was supposed to be like the final battle to finally wipe out this enemy and be done with them. And so they're out. And in this day, the way battles were, especially this one, such a high-profile battle, uh, the king was supposed to be with him. The king was supposed to be riding into battle with his army. But as we see, David was not. For whatever reason, David decided to stay back. He decided to stay back at his palace. Um, I don't know if he was, what he was doing, watching Netflix, I'm not sure. But he was, he was chilling at home, and, but, these, but his military, his army was out in battle with one of his greatest enemies, and he was supposed to be there. 
One evening, uh, the, as the story goes, David was walking on the roof of his palace, which was kind of a common thing to do. It's not like now, like if you climb on your roof, it's like you're not supposed to really do that, so don't do that. Um, but like his was kind of flat, and it was like a common thing to walk across the top, like think of a castle, that kind of thing, right? So he's walking on top of this thing, and he, of course, being the king and having like the biggest, you know, house there is at this time, he was also in like the highest point of the city. And so he could look out over the entire city and see pretty much anything he wanted. Uh, and so he's, he's walking on, on the roof here. That's my daughter. She's cute. Lottie, what are you doing? Anyway, um, I'll try not to be too distracted by her. <laughs> anyway, uh, so he's walking on this roof and he's looking across and he sees this woman bathing, which you would hope that he would just, get, it would be one of those things. You ever like walked up on something that you shouldn't walk up on and you're like, oh, and you like do this summer and you kind of like walk away. You would hope, you would hope that that's kind of what David does here, but that's not, that's not what he does. David Caesar likes what he sees and he calls a servant and says, hey, who is that? And the servant says, I, I think that's the wife of Uriah, one of your, I mean, he was a high-ranking military guy, and so David knew exactly who the husband was. He said, this is, this is the wife of, of one of your men named uh, Uriah, the Hittite, who was out on the battlefield. Uh, and David said, bring her here. And so his servants go and, and get Bathsheba, and bring her to the palace, they hang out for a while, and they end up sleeping together. Which is like, no, it's not clapworthy. Uh, they, uh, this, is, this is like a big no-no, okay? But he's a king. Can't really refuse the king, right? Uh, and so, next day, he sends her home. A little time passes. Uh, she sends word that she's pregnant. So here we are, days of our lives, drama, right? Um, so this guy has now been with uh, another... He's married. He's got his own wives, uh, yes, more than one. He's got his own wives. And then here he is. He has slept with another man's wife, and she's pregnant. And so, like any person deep in sin, he tries to get out of it. Better yet, he actually tries to cover it up. How many times in your life have you ever been like in something, and you try to cover it up? Hopefully nothing like this significant. But often, our first reaction, our first reaction to uh, like something going bad, like we've done something we shouldn't have done, and like people kind of start to find out about it, or, or something like that, we start to try and cover it up, and then a lie becomes another lie, becomes another lie, becomes another lie, becomes another lie. Well, as we go on in the story, we find out that's exactly what happens here. So David sends word to the battlefield for Uriah to come home. Just take a break from battle and come home. And his plan was that Uriah would come home he would meet with, because whenever you, uh, you come off the battlefield, you meet with the king, you give report, all this kind of stuff, and then you go home or whatever, and all, and all that sort of thing. And so the hope was that he'd come back, do, you know, the meal with the king, all this kind of stuff, and he'd go home, and then it would look like the baby was Uriah's and not David's. Right? Sneaky. Yeah. Uh, and so Uriah comes home, has dinner with David, gives him a military, I mean, a battle report, all this kind of stuff, uh, and then leaves. And David's like, yes, the plan's working. And then he finds out that Uriah didn't go home. He went to the, to the front gate of the city and slept outside, which is kind of weird. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you go, like, to your own home? And so, uh, so David, you know, 
sends word, like, why are you doing this? And Uriah says, all of all the other men are in battle. They're all sleeping in tents. So they're all roughing it. Why do I deserve to get to come home and, and like be with my wife and to be at, at, like in my own home, in my own bed? Why would I deserve that? These guys are in battle. They're roughing it. I need to be where they are. So Uriah, a really honorable dude, which just digs the knife a little deeper in David, right? Like not only has he, has he been with another man's wife, but like an honorable, good dude. And so David says, okay, well, come back and eat dinner with me. And his plan this time was to get him drunk so that he would then decide to go home, right? He gets him drunk, Uriah leaves, and then goes back to the gate and sleeps by the gate again. And so David says, well, obviously this guy is not going to go home and, and this plan is not going to happen. So the next logical thing is to kill him. And so he, uh, he sends him back to the battlefield with a messenger and the messenger gives a message to, uh, to Joab, it's a cool name, uh, who, was, who was one of the, the battlefield leaders. And the, and the plan was, the word to this guy, was to put Uriah where the, where like the fiercest battle is, like where it's like the most intense, and then at the right moment, tell everybody to fall back but Uriah. And so basically would, would guarantee that he was going to die because he was in the, the, the most uh, crazy part of the battle all by himself. There was no way to really survive that. And so that's what, that's what Joab does. Puts him out there, and Uriah and some other guys die. <clears throat> and they sort of lose this portion of the battle. They've not, won the, or they've not lost the overall war or any of that kind of thing, but they've, they've lost this portion of the battle. And so Joab has to send a, a military report back to David, and he tells the messenger, he says, okay, go tell David that we've, the enemy's prevailed against us in this, in this spot right here. Uh, and then if he gets mad, remind him that Uriah was there and Uriah died. And so the messenger goes back and he tells David, and says, hey, here's, a military, here's the uh, battlefield update. All this stuff's happened. This one spot, the Ammonites have actually conquered us. They've, they've beat us in this particular portion of the battle. And David just flies off the handle. He's like, how is that possible? Our army's better. And like just, he goes on this rant on the messenger. He's just like unloading on this messenger. And the messenger goes, by the way, Uriah was there and he died. And immediately, David's tune changed because his plan had worked. Yeah, he was kind of mad that they had lost that portion of the battle. And it's not good. But his plan had worked. Uriah had died. So Bathsheba mourned uh, her husband's death. And then after a little while... Uh, she goes to the palace and she becomes a wife of, of David. Right? That is dirty. You're right. You're right. That's absolutely dirty. Um, here's, here's where it gets good, though. Chapter 12. Chapter 12 is where it, is where it gets good. Nathan is a prophet in the land. So there, at this time in history, there were now prophets. There were these uh, people who uh, God had, had called up to be uh, his voice to the people. And so he would speak to a prophet, and then a prophet would declare the word of the Lord to the people. Most often they didn't listen because the people didn't really care what God had to say, but God still sent messages through prophets. And so this prophet, Nathan, was sent to King David with a message. Let's read. I actually want to read this. So in chapter 12, 2 Samuel. Starting in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich 
in the other poor. So he's setting up this scene, right? And there's these two men, one's rich, one's poor. Verse 2, the rich man had very, had very many flocks and herds, so had lots of animals. Uh, verse 3, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he grew, uh, he grew up with uh, him and his children. It used to eat uh, of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. So basically, this little lamb that he had had grown up was basically a pet. Like, do you, anybody have like a dog or a cat or anything like that, right? That's basically what this lamb was to this poor guy. It was a pet more than just a farm animal. It was a pet. Verse 4, now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling uh, to take one of his own flock and herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And so in this story, the rich man wasn't willing to give up his own animals that he had lots of, and so he went and stole the one, the one lamb that the poor man had, the only, only animal he had that was like family to the poor man. What's David's reaction to this story? Verse 5, David says, or excuse me, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And so David's just mad. He's like, find that rich man. He deserves to die. He has to pay back that poor man uh, four times as many animals, even more if you, I mean, like that man deserves the stiffest punishment ever. Verse seven, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Imagine this, okay? You're a prophet. Prophets were often outsiders. People didn't necessarily love when prophets came around because usually the people weren't listening to God and the prophet was saying, hey, you need to get right with God or else, right? And so outsider sort of dude, he comes in before the king, the most powerful guy in the land, and then he has to tell the king that he's done something wrong. Would you want to be that guy? Do you want to be the guy that has to walk in before the most powerful person around and tell him he's done something wrong? I don't think so. But Nathan... He does, man. He just walks in and he says, you're the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I, anoint, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his Sight. So here it is. David is caught red-handed. Of course, all of David's servants and all those people, they knew what was going on. But here, before the court, before because it wasn't just the king in there. It was all of his council. It was all of these people. And before, before the, most, the other most important people and to the most important man in the land, Nathan says, you're the one. You've, you've disobeyed God. You weren't satisfied with what God had already given you, which was much, much more than you ever deserved. And yet you've committed this heinous sin before God. Many of you ever read, uh, I don't know at what point in school you have to read Edgar Allan Poe's uh, story, The Telltale Heart. You guys, have you guys read that? No? Yes? No? Let me tell you a little bit about it. I'm not going to like 
tell you everything. But in the story, there's a man who commits murder. And then he buries the body in his basement. And you're on pose, like real dark. You'll get there. It's cool. Um, so this guy commits murder, buries this body in his basement. A little time passes by, and he hears a heartbeat. And so he goes back to the dead body, pulls up the boards, and he sees it. I mean, it's still dead. It's still there. Puts the wood back down. He leaves, and he hears a heartbeat again. And over and over and over again, time passes, and he continues to hear this heartbeat, yet the body is still, the person is still dead, until it finally drives this man mad. In the end, the heartbeat was his own. It was his guilt. It was his conscience, his guilty conscience for what he had done. This is where David finds himself at this point. He finds himself so drenched in guilt over what he's done, caught so red-handed, there was no way around it. How, how did this happen to a guy that's considered to be a man after God's own heart? How would that happen? Well, let's take a couple notes for you, okay? So he wasn't where he should have been. He should have been on the battlefield with his, with his dudes, right? He should have been out there uh, in battle. He wasn't where he should have been. He was up late in places uh, and, and looking out and seeing things, but then not just turning away when he saw something he shouldn't, but indulging in things that he shouldn't have been indulging in. He, his best friend, Jonathan, was nowhere around. He wasn't in his life anymore. He had no real strong, wise counsel, no friend counsel in his life, so he was worried where he shouldn't have been, just indulging in things he shouldn't have been doing, uh, and he had nobody speaking truth into his life. And so all of that combined and him falling into, uh, allowing himself to fall into that temptation and to fall into the selfish desire that he had, this terrible, terrible thing happened. And he was confronted by Nathan, and it was all put into perspective of how deeply he had sinned against God. But, but what did David do? Often, when we're confronted with the sin, when we're at that moment where we've been caught red-handed in whatever it is we're going to do, there's a couple different choices you can make. You can confess, repent, move on, and try to rebuild whatever it is that you've done. Or you can fly out the handle, you can, you can deny it, you can get angry. He had, David, by all accounts, had every right to just kill Nathan. I mean, he could have just killed him like he did Uriah. But what David did is he fell on his face and he wept. Turn over to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. The table's getting crazy. Psalm 51. You see, at the top of a lot of psalms, not all of them, but some of them, like this one, it gives us a little clue as to what this psalm is about. And I'm, not, I'm not talking about the bold heading in your Bible, probably, but there's some other words there, and it says, to the choir master, psalm of David, and then it says, when Nathan the prophet 
went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so this psalm is David's response after, after Nathan had confronted him with his sin against God. This is, this is how David responded. Let me read some of it. He said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And so he begins to confess. This psalm is, is a great example of what confession and repentance look like. And in a second, we'll get into the difference in those. Confession and repentance are slightly different, and it's important that we'll look at that. But he begins to confess. He's weeping before God. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He's saying, I can't get it out of my mind. I can't stop thinking about what I've done. Verse 4. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a place where you just can't stop thinking about stuff that you've done? Verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, that's not, that's not overly true, right? David didn't just sin against God because he had a man killed and he stole a man's wife. And he, I mean, there were lots of people David did evil against. But ultimately, all of that was against God because people are created by God and all of this. And David was supposed to be a king that followed God's will and he had disobeyed God. And so this is what David's saying. He's like, the greatest of all of this is that I've sinned against you, Lord. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So from, from birth, he's admitting that he was sinful. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Yes? Verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And so this is where he's starting to ask for renewal, to ask for change. You see, at the beginning, he was confessing. He was admitting that he had done wrong. He was admitting, confessing that he had sinned. And that's confession. And now here is where you see repentance. This is where repentance is different than confession because confession is just admitting. Repentance is doing something about what you've done wrong. It's trying to change. It's seeking the Lord and allowing God to change you. Verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness gladness let the bones that you have broken rejoice hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities create in me a clean heart o god and renew a right spirit in me cast me not away from your presence and take not your holy spirit from me so he's continuing to ask all these things from god verse 13 then i will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. And he goes on and continues um, for a few more verses. And he ends there where, where we just stopped. He's talking about because of what you've, what you've done. And David knows. He knows the heart of God that when you repent, whenever you confess, you admit that you've done something wrong and you repent and seek genuine change in your life, you want to actually move away from whatever that sin is. You actually want your life to be changed by God. Um, he knows that God is faithful in doing that, that God has promised to do that, and he knows that God's faithful. And so he's saying that he's going to declare to the nations how good God is. He's going to go and tell them of God's great love. And so he confesses. He admits that he has no real good excuse. He's sinned against God. He seeks 
repentance, to be changed. And he declares that he's going to speak and sing of God's great love. And God continually, we see in David's life and throughout the entire Bible, and hopefully in the lives around you and in your life, you've seen that God will continues to forgive when we seek him. We realize that we've messed up. We all fail. We all do things. We all mess up. But in those moments, how do we respond? Do we dig ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into that mess, into the darkness, into the brokenness? Or do we turn and confess, repent, and run to God? You see, that is what ultimately makes David a man after God's own heart. Because time and time again, when David failed, immediately when he realized, when he came to a point, when God had confronted him with the sin that he had, every single time David fell on his face and begged God for forgiveness and moved away, turned and ran away from whatever temptation, whatever sin he had fallen into. That's what kept David so close to God, made him ultimately the man that God had created. Because God knows that we're all, we all fail. We all end up broken. We all end up in a mess. But it's how we respond when we realize that. We realize the brokenness in all of this. For those of you um, who are Christians, meaning that you've put your faith in Jesus, believing in his death, burial, and resurrection, and following him, Jesus' death covers your sins. And so, in a way, you're kind of already forgiven uh, for all of that. But confession and repentance is actually more for you than it is for God. Confession and repentance is actually more for you than it is for God. You see, when we're, we're in our mess, we're in our brokenness, and all of this, all we see is that. All we see is our brokenness. All we see is the darkness that we find ourselves in. But whenever we confess, it's, it's at that point that we've realized that there's something, there's something greater, there's something bigger. It allows the cloud of darkness and sin to be wiped away out of our mind and to be able to see God clearly and to focus on him. Whenever we bring ourselves to a point that we're able to confess and to repent from those things, it bring us, brings us back and God continually wants to draw us in and make us whole and remove the sin from our lives. And for those who are not Christians, you know in your life that there's brokenness, that there's something not quite right. God wants to come and, and heal you spiritually, wants to make you whole spiritually, and it's that believing in Jesus, believing in his death, burial, and resurrection, confessing your sins that brings you into that relationship with God that makes you whole, that brings you rescue and salvation. And so what I, what I hope we see in this is, is a man after God's own heart, even though he failed, even though he allowed himself to, to commit some terrible evils, he was able to repent and to confess and to make things right with God over and over and over again. And you can do the same in your life, and God's waiting to do that for you over and over again. And some of you aren't in a place of brokenness, and you maybe not have been at this point but this is still truth for you to hold on to in those moments, in your darkest moments. God's there. All you've got to do is turn to him. Let me pray. Father, I, uh, I thank you that you're there. I thank you that you rescued David and that you rescue us just the same. For those who are in the room, Lord, if they're 
not in relationship with you, Holy Spirit, I ask that you convict and you move and you soften their hearts and you bring them to a point that they're willing to go talk to an adult leader or maybe a Christian friend, ask all the questions, and to seek you. For those of us who already believe in you, Father, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would continually draw us to you and to help pull us out of our temptations, out of our sins, and to be able to turn and confess and not dig ourselves deeper and deeper into the brokenness and darkness and realize that your light is better and greater and you will always, always forgive. Christ, we pray. Amen. Don't move yet. Don't move yet.